Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. I'm Andrew Harris, and joining me is, you, you won't believe this, Andrew Decker. Hello, everybody. Hey, Mr. Decker. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good as well. I'm finally back in the office, uh, recovered to, from COVID. Yes, it is good see, to so be seen. So now that you're here, you realize you were remote last time, not us. Sure. Okay. I just I think that know. helped you. You know, my first day back in the office after that, we got a little surprise from uh, from a guest. That's uh, right. On the carpet. Someone who we actually referred to in our Twitter account. Lovingly. As our, as, as our favorite prosecutor. Yeah, his dog was visiting us. And left a pile of poop on the carpet. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, thanks, Lair Bear. Yeah, Lair Bear, we're calling you out and your dog for pooping on the rug. Good gosh, man. This is a professional office space here. That's right. Uh, only Winston can do that. <laughs> Anyways, man. Let's move uh, on to something I, a little more appropriate. I am excited about this uh, this guest and this episode, this topic. Um, I think this is going to be a, a lot of really great information for uh, all the defenders out there. Right. I agree. I agree. And I, and I think that what we're going to find is, um, you know, my former life, I was a, I was a minister. And one of the yeah. questions when the disciples first met Jesus was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This, this is proof that something good can come out of Parker County. <laughs> so let's bring in the, the only good product of Parker County that we've been able to find. <laughs> and that would be Christy, uh, Christy Taylor uh, with um, uh, the Judicial Commission. And so, uh, Christy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So explain to, to our listeners, you know, how you got started, um, you know, why, why did you want to become a lawyer and then what your current role is? Sure. Okay. So I, you know, I grew up in Plano and in Weatherford, as you said, and um, that was uh, quite eye-opening to move from Plano to Parker County in the late 80s. I'm not sure they were ready for me. I had my uh, shoulder pads and animal prints, you know, from the big city and, uh, but it, it was a great experience and it, it turned out to be really helpful later that I have lived in suburban and at the time Weatherford was more rural and I don't know if it really is anymore, but um, I'm a 27 year lawyer, a mom, and now I'm the executive director of the Texas Judicial Commission on Mental Health. Well, that's um, fantastic. So you were a trendsetter early on and now, you know, in your <laughs> current role, uh, trying to trying to set some trends uh, on on helping some of our defenders help those who have some mental illness uh, in the criminal uh, justice system, right? Yes, I heard you guys say before, um, I listened to some podcasts that you had both done CPS cases on the wheel before. And I actually started there. Um, well, before that, I started as a commercial real estate lawyer in downtown Dallas, and was volunteering with CASA and the Child Protection Center. And just felt absolutely called that, um, you know, working downtown in real estate was not the thing for me that I was going to go represent children and families in the greatest challenges of their lives. And so I had moved to Austin, was starting to have my own family and just changed careers by getting on the wheel in Travis County and representing people in CPS cases. Um, and then in 2006, the Supreme Court had asked in, um, in an ad, if there were any attorneys with experience in CPS cases that could help identify some of the problems. And I know, as you guys know, once you get into these cases, you, you find out a lot about the problems. So I, uh, I jumped on that opportunity and went to work for the Supreme Court downtown Austin to start a judicial commission for child welfare. 
And what uh, the Supreme Court had done is they had some federal funding that they were really uh, taking advantage of to help train judges and attorneys about child welfare. And so I stayed with that commission for a dozen years. And in 2017, I was asked to work on a new judicial commission on mental health. So that's where we are now, four years later. Wow. Yeah, that, that, I, I love that. You know, and I, I, the more attorneys that we interview on this podcast, the more, you know, it's a, like a running theme. Like they, they are in their particular position or doing their job because of they have the passion to help others or a passion for what they do. And it's just really inspiring to me to hear those stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're now on, you're, you're now the executive director of the state, the Texas Judicial Commission on Mental Health. Define that for us. What is that? Sure. It's one of those wonky terms that I know people's eyes glaze over. So if you can envision a group of judges from every level of the judiciary in Texas, and we've added prosecutors, defense attorneys, law enforcement, and of course, mental health experts. And we are gathering in Austin. Um, These people are appointed by the two highest courts in the state, the Supreme Court of Texas and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And our mission is to engage and empower courts throughout the state to help the lives of people with mental health challenges or intellectual or developmental disabilities. And so to keep that work moving, you can imagine all those folks are super busy, right? So we have a small staff of eight that I lead where we have four lawyers, one you've actually interviewed before. I think you went to law school with uh, Liz Wiggins. She has joined our team. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, former guest on the show. Yes, yes. Um, And then we have a former prosecutor, Molly Davis, a former defense attorney, uh, Kay Maharis, and a paralegal. um, And we work to become subject matter experts working with all of these great folks in Texas. And then we are the ones who share that information, write it down, make it accessible to try to provide judges and attorneys with tools and resources, because we know this is a lot you know, you, you guys are doing a lot. And so you need, uh, you need some shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah. The shortcuts are, are not some, someone said a shortcut is not a way to cheat. It is a way to do things more efficiently. Um, and sometimes we feel like a shortcut means that we've somehow cheated. That's not the case. Um, you know, multiplication is a shortcut from adding four, three times. Right. Yeah. So Fuzzy, fuzzy math. My brain now hurts. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so y'all just released a new initiative, and this is really what we, ha- what, what we have you on the show for. And the initiative, in my understanding, is titled Initi- Eliminate the Weight. Initiate the Weight. That wouldn't be good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Eliminate the Weight. Uh, what is it and why? Eliminate the Weight is a bigger movement where we're trying to gather all the different professionals who intersect between mental health and criminal justice. And uh, the reason that the uh, JCMH is what we call our commission and uh, Texas Health and Human Services is lovingly HHSC, we have joined together to create checklists for all of the professions involved in this uh, to, to do what you're saying, not, um, not to cut corners, but to make it more complete and to make it easier for people that are uh, juggling a lot of things. Uh, frankly, we're in crisis. I don't know if you guys have seen this affecting your clients yet, but we have 2000 people waiting in Texas jails across the state 
for inpatient competency restoration services. And so, you know, this is bad for counties. It adds costs and burdens on our jails. And it's absolutely devastating for the people waiting in jail. Um, if you're waiting in jail for inpatient competency restoration on a misdemeanor, you, with this kind of wait list, will never see any sort of competency restoration services. You know, you will time out before you get through that kind of waiting list. And so we, uh, we worked with TCDLA. We had... Uh, their best and brightest look at our checklist and edit and add to it. So they've added their support to this initiative. And, um, and we've created a checklist for sheriffs and jailers, one for judges, prosecutors, and behavioral health providers. So they can um, understand the bigger problem, but then also have some actionable things they could do day to day to try to help with this crisis. Yeah, I, I think that... <sighs> Mental health in the in the whether whether we call it a crisis or just a, you know in, in the moment, uh, it is so difficult, especially if you if you're dealing with a prosecutor or a defense attorney or a judge who has not encountered that world significantly enough to realize it's overwhelming for the client. Right, I Absolutely. have I I have a client who. She and her, her wife both are, have some mental deficiencies, yeah. for lack of a better term. Not trying to be mean, just trying right. to be real honest. And so they don't have the verbal skills to talk out an argument. Yeah. Right? And so they, they act in the way that, that, they, that they would. And they probably are more like teenagers or even maybe preteens in their mental capacity and to convince a prosecutor that jailing one of them is not helping either one of them. These women probably care for each other better than anybody else will. Right. And so to get them through a system is, is, is more than just getting credit for time served. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And in, in that instance, you know, we have, if we're presented with a client that, that shows to us in our untrained, you know, in, in our untrained intellects, what, what appears to be some mental deficiency. We usually ask a court for a competency eval and let a pro trained professional determine whether or not that person, in their opinion, is competent to proceed or not. Um, and if they, if they come back incompetent, depending on the county and the county's resources that you're practicing in, you know, a lot of times in our smaller rural counties, it's like, all right, well, they're just going to a state hospital. And, you know, who, who cares? So, I mean, is that what, I guess my question is like, why does it take so long to get our clients this, this help, you know, the help that they need to retain or regain competency? Sure. There are some long-term problems that have contributed to this. I don't know if y'all have ever talked about how in the 1960s and 70s, you know, there were a lot of atrocities going on in, in mental institutions. And so, again, complicated problems. There were good efforts to try to break down institutions, but, you know, perhaps we overcorrected. So there were a lot of financial incentives to close down state-funded institutions. And the thought was that communities were going to then receive the funding and be able to build up the communities to have people in community, which would always be preferable, you know, the, the least restrictive setting. But what we saw is that the communities did not keep up with the increase. 
And over the past 20 years, I know Texas at least has seen almost a 40% increase in people who are found incompetent to stand trial. So, you know, we kind of had this big storm coming for a long time. And then um, in recent years, when we started to look at what is happening right now, we, we found a couple of other things that we think too many people are coming in that front door, that there are people who could be diverted away and are being arrested. And so we really need to build up that process with law enforcement. And, um, you know, there are a lot of new crisis responses that are happening where you bring out a mental health person with law enforcement so that arrest isn't really the only answer. Um, and another huge, huge problem that we've discovered is there's a misunderstanding about competency restoration, that it really is so important, as, as you guys know, to protect constitutional rights. We don't want someone who can't understand the charges against them or who, who can't help their lawyers um, go into trial. But I think because these services were happening in, at state hospital, the uh, that there was a myth growing that this is just where you send everybody to get treatment. And uh, we've heard from too many people. I have a dear friend whose son went through the competency restoration system and she said, you know, he got sicker because the focus was on stabilization and memorizing the legal process and being able to uh, explain that legal process. So the, the treatment that he was getting wasn't necessarily treating that underlying issue. And so she said he was getting more and more psychotic but he was getting more docile because he, the purpose was to keep him calm to, you know, learn this process. So uh, I talked to my staff about it and I said, if there's one thing I need to communicate today, it's uh, let's start thinking more critically about the competency restoration services. If you have somebody as a lawyer who needs that, it's, um, you know, it's part of your duty, but just let's watch that train because once it gets brought up, then judges have to order the um, evaluation and once the evaluation goes forward, it can be this train that's leading us to inpatient um, wait list that really isn't the best, isn't the best always. So um, we're asking if there's a misdemeanor, are we looking at every other diversion possible? Is it really going to help them to sit in jail and wait like that? Um, so that that's one thing. And then I'd say the last thing is um, inefficiencies and delays. I know y'all had Elise Ferguson on the show before and she's yeah. one of our commissioners. Yeah. And uh, she's helped a lot. She has great practical ideas about if someone has to go through the competency restoration system, how can we make sure we're not wasting time that if every county is wasting 10 days and the time it takes them to go pick up the person at state hospital, if they're, you know, uh, waiting, I had a mom tell me her son waited eight months when the time he got back from state hospital and was restored to having his trial. And so um, those are the things that, that we're looking at is at all costs, please let's not let people, you know, re-deteriorate in jail. And a lot of times, you know, they just, they start that process all over again. And we call it the revolving door. I know y'all have seen it right. in your pointed cases. Well, on the listserv yesterday, someone put up, uh, that very question. I had a client, they were found incompetent. They went, um, to, to that. They said state hospital. I don't know which one. Um, yeah. and they came back and the, the, the defense attorney's like, I think he's incompetent now. Um, that, you know, he, that he's fallen back into that. 
and the judge doesn't want to have doesn't want to hear it and so he's asking for a trial on competency um yeah was that the tcdla or the tarrant county tcdla TC, yeah. the statewide one yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or on the, it was on the list server on the Facebook group. I can't remember which, but, right. but it came up yesterday. I saw it yesterday, this very question of they went, they were restored, they're back and not, uh, competent. not yeah. competent. Well, at least, at least the defense attorney feels that way. Um, yeah. sure. well, and it, it, this happens a lot. And so that's why we're thinking that if we draw the attention of all these different disciplines, we can think about how we each have a part in that if the court had a policy of a restored person coming back has to be heard within X number of days. I know Elise says they do that in Collin County. If um, she says she talks about how she'll make sure and get the bench warrants lined up um, or while the person's away and, and coming back. Um, and even just talking about how defense attorneys can keep working the case and the prosecutors that a lot of times, you know, if someone goes to state hospital, they get on this list and they can, they can kind of fall off the radar, but she really encourages her attorneys to keep working the cases and, and, and to shave off any bit of excess time that we can. Um, yeah. And the medications are so important too. Um, I'd say in our checklist, the checklist for the sheriff and jailers, defense attorneys, I think would benefit from looking at that because there are a lot of state laws that say that the clients in jail are supposed to be getting 24 seven telemental health access. Um, they're supposed to be getting their prescription medications. And I, I know that this varies and, and that jails are in a tough spot. You know, we're not trying to call the jails out, but it's those sort of conversations where the defense attorneys push the issue that can, can keep the change happening. Um, if, is there, if is, keep, yeah, go ahead. Is that, is that something that you could send to Andrew and I, and we can put it up on the, uh, on the show notes and have that available as like a download or something, or, or, or yes, at least tell us that. where that resource is located and I can point them in that right direction. Yeah. We'd love that. We'll do both. Awesome. We'll share it with you. And then it's on yeah. our website. Um, we also have a bench book that's helpful where we sat down and wrote out all the mental health law and there's one for adults and one for juveniles. And uh, I really think this is an emerging body of law. You know how specialties yep. rise up. I, I really think it is. The, the mental health law is so scattered and, you know, it crosses civil and criminal and, and like I said, every level from JPs to, um, you know, our highest Supreme Court and CCA. So I, I think that um, having that book in front of you, I know that sometimes I will learn something and then forget it six months later, but I'm so glad that we wrote it down and I can flip back to that. And uh, we link everything to try to make it as easy as possible so that you can, you know, jump to the statute and read it yourself. And, um, and it's something we've heard that it's not just attorneys and lawyers that we've heard law enforcement and mental health providers coming forward and saying, I didn't know why I was doing that. You know, a lot of law enforcement officers saying, I've been doing this for 12 years and I didn't know the, the law behind it. Right. And so um, it's, it's something that's been really helpful for a lot of different people involved in the system. So how do we get that help quicker, right? One of the questions that I, that I think has to be addressed is how do we get the help quicker? Yeah, I, I think one of the first steps is we need our defense attorneys to, um, you know, develop the knowledge in this area. It's complicated and uh, not that we're going to become therapists, but you know, we need to know enough to, to be able to point people in the right direction. 
And I think one thing that's missed is, um, I think you might've been alluding to it in um, the case you were talking about is intellectual disability, that it's, it's complicated and we, you know, we don't say MR anymore. So intellectual disability takes um, that place where there might be intellectual functioning challenges as well as adaptive life skills don't come as easily. And then there are developmental disabilities uh, such as autism or cerebral palsy, fetal alcohol syndrome. And those um, a lot of times get grouped in together as IDD to try to capture all of those things. And so I think uh, that population, it you know only occurs about 4% of the time in the population at large, but in our jails, we know it's much higher, more like 10%. And so we're definitely missing um, people going through the system and, and not getting connected to services. And, and it's not being used as a, a mitigating factor because you know maybe um, they're ashamed, right? There's a lot of people that were told by their parents um, buck up and do your best. And so they, they don't admit to that. They don't um, even have the language for it, like you were saying. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of education out there for attorneys. And I think some of these things, um, you know, I have defense attorneys on my staff and I live with a defense attorney. And so I know there are a lot of these things that you'll do already. Talk to the family, connect to your local mental health third authorities, um, connecting to the jails to find out, you know, who that one deputy is that might give you a heads up if your client is going south. Mm. Um, I think a lot of those are happening already. But we're also trying to bring awareness that there are actual laws around this that, you know, you may not know about that you learned it kind of on the fly in the process. But uh, the Code of Criminal Procedure has a requirement that jails are reporting if they suspect any mental health issues or IDD, that those have to be given to the magistrate and that the magistrate would then ask, um, it's usually someone from the local mental health authority in the jail to um, interview the defendant and write a report. And um, just the more we find out around Texas, a lot of defense attorneys are not getting those reports. That process is not perfect yet in Texas. I've had a lot of judges say, I'm a trial court judge. I've never gotten a report like that. Um, but defense attorneys, prosecutors, uh, sheriffs are all supposed to be receiving those reports when they're finished. And um, it, you know, it's something that could alert you to um, a previous issue. So you couldn't yeah. see uh, Mr. Harris' face. You, <laughs> the, the look on his face was like, "Oh hell, I've never seen that report." Nope, <laughs> not not even once in our in our beloved home county here. Um, but but Tarrant County, yes, they they have a I think they have a pretty robust uh, MHMR docket and infrastructure there. And then, uh, like you said, Collin County does a does a pretty uh, bang up job at right. that as well. Uh, but I don't, I don't think in some of these smaller counties, I just don't think I've seen any of that. Right. Well, it, what we find in, in, is that it is done now mostly by telehealth. Uh, but even then it yeah. is not as robust. There's not someone kind of there on the ground, uh, making eye to eye contact, which right. is always better. Um, so what, the, the next big question would be, What's the difference for getting help for our in-custody client versus our out-of-custody client? Because obviously there are different resources. Where do we go? What do we look for? Sure. So obviously out-of-custody is always better, right? If we can get that, if we can get them out on that 17032 mental health bond, 
if you can um, learn, you know, educate yourself about all the different options available through your local mental health authority and then through all the um, private organizations as well. And so uh, that's, that's preferred. I've seen a lot of smaller communities make progress with having a mental health officer where that mental health officer, you know, if it's a small enough community can know, um, you know, this handful of people that I'm going to keep an eye on, I'm going to go check on and, um, and make sure they're, um, they're making progress. And, and that as the attorney, you're able to document that and help their case. But I would say in custody, you know, having that relationship with the jail, it's, you know, it's going to depend. I know there's some jails who are um, more transparent than others for different reasons and, you know, different leadership styles. But I would say get to know someone inside that jail that um, can tell you if they're getting that medication, that you can talk to the family and say what worked well, what, what didn't work well. I think we have a lot of wasted time because we, we don't pass that information along and they may be putting someone on a medication that doesn't work for them or you know worse, just absolutely nothing, no medication and they're just decomposing day by day. Um, yeah. So I would take advantage of um, some of those laws that are listed in our, our sheriff and jailer list uh, to make sure they're getting that um, care that, that they are entitled to inside the jail. And yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a, a great point. You know, I, I, a lot of our clients also, you know, the, the ones that are um, maybe subject to this mental health um, eliminate the weight initiative and even our ones who are, who are competent um, will, you know, always say like out of custody is better. I gotta, I gotta fight this from the free world. Um, and so it, it's, it's nice to be able to at least have, you know, like that checklist you were referencing, like to be able to, to have those resources readily available to be able to better serve those clients who may need that. So, so we, we can develop the knowledge in this area. We can know what our local jurisdictions provide as far as mental health resources for in custody and out of custody clients. What is there like a, the biggest step that we need to take as defense attorneys you know, what's the number one thing that we can do um, to make sure that these clients are getting the help that they need? Yeah, I, I would say this right here. Thank you guys for doing this. Uh, We really just need to spread the word and, and look at um, mental illness and intellectual disability in a different light. I think that um, there are a lot of attorneys and judges out there who, who really don't see it that way, you know, we're still very much in a punishment mindset and if we educate ourselves, the, the science tells us that that doesn't get us where we want to be, that uh, we you know, need to look at our specialty courts. I, you know, I've heard plenty of defense attorneys say, get to know the coordinator. I know you guys are probably pros at that, and, and you know how to get into those specialty courts. One of our commissioners is um, Judge Brent Carr, and he runs veterans courts and um, human trafficking courts and a mental health court. So Christy, Judge Carr, I I was actually noticed Judge Carr was one of the commissioners. As we're recording uh, today, he is he is presiding over his last veterans court. He's 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 retiring um, and uh, he he does an incredible job with that. Such a such a great resource there in Terrence. So a a shout out to to Judge Carr and for all the work that he's done with the veterans. He's deserved his retirement for sure. Yep. Yep. He's one of the good ones. He is incredible. And and he. 
he came so highly recommended to the commission and he is up for anything. You know, he um, traveled with us to Miami to find out um, how another court was handling um, the, the low level competency restoration there. And he is going to serve as a mentor. He, he was already doing this, but he's yeah. going to officially serve as a mentor with us to uh, help other judges learn how to set up a mental health court. Um, you know, that can be really intimidating. And he talks all the time about how he had a no funding. You know, he started with right. relationships and said, someone from the LMHA, you know, if you'll come over here and, and help figure out what's already available, um, we'll take a shoestring budget and we'll grow it. Yeah, so, that's what it takes. Well, it, take, it takes people doing the work. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, show up, do the work. Good things are going to happen eventually. Yeah, that's so. a little little throwback to Smid's uh, yeah. uh, episode. This last episode, mm -hmm. show up mm -hmm. and do the work. So, yeah. so Christy, we ask everybody a few questions, a few fun questions. First of all, thank you for all the information. I've seen the checklist. Uh, I looked it up online while we were prepping for the show. It is invaluable. Um, uh, we'll definitely make sure that that's in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so, our fun questions we ask everybody because we want to know something more about the person behind the the brains. Um, Favorite band or musical artist? You know, favorite is a strong word. My Spotify uh, playlist would tell you I'm all over the board. But uh, I have found a new appreciation for David Byrne. I just saw American Utopia, and um, it's showing on Broadway right now. Amazing, if you haven't um, had a chance to check that out. I, I've definitely deepened my appreciation since the uh, Talking Heads days in uh, Weatherford High School. <laughs> right on. <laughs> what about your uh, favorite book or, or one you're currently reading or just one that you recommend to people? Sure. So uh, I'm sure you've had people say Brene Brown. I don't know. Um, I've used Dare to Lead in work situations and in training with our office. And I'm reading Atlas of the Heart. And I'm such a word nerd. She talks about how language is so important to understand emotions and that if we can't accurately describe something, we can't move through it. Um, and, and also it was kind of a cool coincidence that we are starting to do mapping through our office where we will go into communities and map out your resources and your gaps and help create a plan that way. And uh, this whole book is the Atlas and talking about mapping the, um, the heart and, and emotion. So I thought it was a, a really yeah. neat coincidence. I, I'm sure pure coincidence, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, not, not likely. All right. So last question, best piece of advice you've been given personal or professional? Well, I know a defense attorneys might uh, relate to this. I have had to work on learning to say no and, and without explaining myself, <laughs> you know, I think so many defense attorneys are givers and just so busy and um, working on that self-care that it's a big part of mental health too, is to make sure you are putting that oxygen mask on yourself first or you have nothing left to share. Yeah, I love that. That is, that's really hard. That's a, 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 a exercise in setting boundaries and maintaining those boundaries. I mean, you don't really have to give a reason to every time you have to say no, but I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, yes. Christy, thank you for being on the show. It is, you have done great. Wonderful. Uh, and, and we will definitely hope that, uh, that the list goes out, that the checklist goes out, that we all can can benefit from doing better work and mostly important, more importantly, that our clients can benefit from, from this yeah. and what we've learned today. So we're Andrew and Andrew on Texas criminal defense. 
I think, you know, we, uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on the web at texascrimdefense.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm not even going to talk about it because it's so sad. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, we're there, we're there. You can reach us. We love to find uh, guests because they've reached out to us. Christy and her staff reached out to us and that's how we found the judicial commission. Um, and it made for a great show. So if you have an idea, please contact us. We would love to hear your idea and probably have you as a guest on the show. If you need any of these resources, uh, contact us through our website um, and we can get you everything that, that Christy talked about uh, on today's show to you. This is really great information. We hope you're doing what you can uh, for these clients who really need uh, our, our, our help here. Yep. And, you know, as Brene Brown would definitely say, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself, people. Because if you're not well, you can't be well for your client. So, all right. Well, I think that is it for today. Be good. 